0: Welcome back to Breaking Down Barriers, a podcast about entrepreneurship-led economic development. This episode was recorded as part of the live 2022 EAIC Catalyst Network discussion series with our podcast host, David Ponraj, founder and CEO of Economic Impact Catalyst. The conversation kicks off with introductions to special guests who are entrepreneurship support practitioners and national leaders in the field. We hope you enjoy this month's episode.
1: Thank you all for joining the next edition of our EIC Catalyst Network Discussion Series. This one is focused on empowering micro-businesses. Today, we have Ryan Cobbins, Susan Perrault, and Connie Evans joining us today. Thank you, uh, panelists, for joining us. I'll just start by having you introduce yourselves. I'll say uh, Ryan is an owner and operator of Coffee at the Point, a 12-year-old three square foot coffee and wine lounge in Five Points, Denver, Colorado. He's also the program director of Energize Colorado's Gap Fund. So Ryan, why don't you uh, unmute and introduce yourself, please?
2: Yeah, thank you guys. I appreciate, David, the honor of being uh, part of the discussion today. And so like you mentioned, um, I own a uh, Coffee at the Point. We're in a revitalizing area of uh, Denver, Colorado called Five Points, historically, Black uh, neighborhood, um, jazz-rich neighborhood, I should say, as well. And so, I'm also the program director for the Energized Colorado Gap Fund, um, and we are um, deploying funds to micro businesses. And I define that as, in, in our niche, um, businesses with 25 or fewer employees around the state of Colorado. Um, in four priority groups, uh, BIPOC, woman-owned veteran, and also rural businesses. I'm also the chair of the Five Points Business Improvement District Board, uh, the chair of the Colorado Children's Campaign, which is an advocacy group for children, um, and then a, a few other organizations and boards as well.
1: And next up, we have Connie Evans, who's the president and CEO for the Association for Enterprise Opportunity. Uh, Connie is an visionary leader, astute strategist, activist, and social entrepreneur who has founded three organizations. And Connie, I won't go into the full spiel, but would love to kind of uh, have you share about your background and your history. uh, And thank you for joining us today.
3: Well, hello, everyone. And it's a pleasure, David, to join you and this um, other group of fine panelists that we have today. Um, As you mentioned, AEO, as we're called... Is the National Trade Association for US Micro Business and Microfinance. We are celebrating 30 years of supporting underserved entrepreneurs to achieve economic uh, empowerment and achievement by owning their own business. I come to this work as the product of a self employed mother. Uh, who ran a catering business, put us all through, four of us, my siblings, through college, uh, bought our own home in, in Tennessee. And so the work that we're doing to support micro businesses all across this country has a very special place to me. We know that business ownership drives wealth creation. We just need to get the right size set of resources, capital and other business support, trusted guidance is what we call it, to these entrepreneurs so that they can thrive, grow, and hire.
1: Well, thank you. And next up, we have Suzanne. Suzanne is the uh, Small Business Services Manager at Michigan Economic Development Corporation. Suzanne is responsible for the strategic development, execution, and management of micro and place-based business support activities and technical assistance initiatives across Michigan. Suzanne, uh, please go ahead and introduce
0: yourself. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Um, it's a pleasure to join you this afternoon or this this morning, actually. Um, I'm the manager of the small business services team at the MEDC, or Michigan Economic Development Corporation. The MEDC is the state's lead economic development organization, really responsible for marketing the state, ensuring that businesses have access to the resources they need to start up and grow, and and foster vibrant communities. Um, I actually have spent many years working in local government and understand the importance that our downtowns and traditional historic commercial districts play in talent attraction and sort of revitalization um, and ensuring that talent stays within our state. Um, And it It's really been an interesting journey from community development to recognizing the role that small businesses and micro businesses play in community development. Um, My team is focused primarily working with place-based businesses, so those located in our traditional downtowns, as well as micro businesses. And generally, we have two primary customers, so we serve both the small business owner themselves with resources and tools, but we also work with local connectors, uh, DDAs, Main Street programs, communities, municipalities, and business support organizations, uh, because they're really doing the work at the local level. So we want to ensure that they are trained, that they have the resources and tools that they need in order to reach the small businesses that they're working
1: working with. Thank you. So I'll just start with you, Ryan. Could you kind of help us understand, uh, you know, the role that micro businesses play? Uh, I know it's kind of what we call the not sexy work, you know, supporting micro businesses that might not end up in the news or, uh, you know, is not the flashy high growth, high tech startup, but what role do you think micro businesses play in kind of revitalizing our economy?
2: Yeah. And I, I would say an incredible role. I think we just heard the, the, the impact of micro-businesses, individuals like myself, um, working to create some form of wealth um, for ourselves and for our families, and I would also argue for our communities as well. I know in Colorado, and I just read this statistic, I need to find it again, um, but our micro-businesses are, are growing our economy at a faster rate than our, our larger businesses, right? We're employing more individuals, um, you know, and so... What what role does it play? It plays a, a heavy role um, in our economy here in Colorado.
1: Yep. So Connie, from your perspective and the work that you all do, you know, where do you see the role of micro businesses, and you know, how do you kind of influence the outcome through supporting micro businesses?
3: Yeah, it's a really great question, and I uh, agree with everything Ryan said these businesses, um, what we call micro businesses, really are making up more than 90% of all businesses in this country, not 90% of small business, 90% of all the businesses in this country. And so if we don't do what's necessary to help these businesses come back, stabilize so they can grow, we're really not just hurting that individual business owner, but their community and our entire economy. They are so crucial. And in particular, when we start thinking about employment and Black employment, you know, right now the country touts this super historically low unemployment rate. But for Black and brown individuals, particularly around Black Uh, employees, the number is still quite high. Unemployment is still quite high. And what our research has shown is that when Black-owned businesses are able to grow, they actually hire uh, other Blacks. And so if we want to not only be able to uh, have an impact on wealth creation, we need to also think about how do we support these businesses that are vital to employment in our local uh, communities of color. So they play a vital role in bringing this economy back, having resilience in the economy, and really building um, an incredible, important future of of, uh, strength and resilience in our communities.
1: And I know, Suzanne, you've been doing a lot of work recently on this. Uh, Can you share, you know, what you're seeing with micro businesses uh, in the state of Michigan?
0: Yeah, I think we've kind of touched on the three key roles that micro businesses are playing job creator. um, I do have an interesting stat that was released in May here in Michigan. Um, So in 2021, small businesses with fewer than 50 employees created almost 170,000 jobs. This has been the fastest start to small business growth in 23 years. Um, This came out of the Michigan Bureau of Labor Market Information. Um, And we've also recognized uh, or saw that we've Seen a ton of new small business starts in 2021. 150,000 small businesses started or filed their applications to start small businesses, um, which is 59% higher than 2019. So it's just an explosion. And that's kind of like why we are really leaning into the work around micro business. So thinking about the role that they play in community and building attractive places and kind of making destination communities. We need the local mom and pop. We need the third places, the coffee shops, the co-working spaces to really maintain that talent attraction piece. We're seeing it as um, we're seeing micro businesses job creators. And then again, this has been touched on, but um, entrepreneurship as a path. To upward economic mobility, um, so the I- additional income that small business ownership is bringing into families, especially in underrepresented communities, is, is really key. Yeah,
1: and we're going to get a little bit deeper into some of the uh, data that you have, Suzanne, because I'm excited to you know have you share that. Let's talk a little bit about innovation in this space, and I know uh, Connie, that's something that uh, you know I'd love for you to touch on. Is what innovation can we see? Uh, in this space uh, around micro businesses? And, you know, are you, uh, when it comes to capital, for example, innovation around how we uh, deploy capital? Uh, how do we create the right technical support network? What innovation do you see in this space?
3: So, actually, quite a bit of innovation uh, going on, but I have to pa- pause and say it's still not enough, right? So, um, one of the four work Streams at AEO is innovation. We have an active innovation hub where we really focus on reimagining what we call technical assistance. We've never met an entrepreneur who knows what technical assistance is, but they all want trusted guidance. And so AEO really urges people to take on the framework of trusted guidance. But what's important about that trusted guidance, we know that from our research, again, when entrepreneurs have access to capital and trusted guidance, they are able to grow 30 times more revenue than those who only receive capital or who don't receive any services. And so the innovation to bring what we call technology-enabled innovations to entrepreneurs is critically important. One of the places where we know there is a huge need for innovation and where there is some innovation going on, is capital access. One of the things that we know entrepreneurs look for is a line of credit. It is almost impossible to get, whether you're under $100,000 a year in revenue or people like in the Bowl Collective, which are 50 Black-owned, women-owned businesses whose annual sales in the aggregate are over $250 million, and they can't get a line of credit. Each of those women have, Black women business owners, have a minimum of a million dollars in annual sales revenue, and they can't get a line of credit. We have entrepreneurs on the other end can't get a line of credit. Very few CDFIs, actually have the capacity and the liquidity to have a line of credit. We need innovation there. Another place where we need innovation is that capital that's not just debt. And so we can look at one of our partners um, who is doing revenue uh, revenue financing, revenue-based financing. Again, kind of a new way of thinking about how do you put money into a business without stripping away all of its equity? And then one last piece I'll mention in terms of uh, capital access innovation is um, AEO has recently invested in an app called Founders Tribe, and Founders Tribe is using not only its app, but it's targeting millennials around the globe, but particularly our focus in the U.S., It's millennials. And so I have to crack up every time I say this, but they're using the same kind of technology where you you swipe left or swipe right to uh, get a match to a lending source, whether that is an angel investor or VC or whatever it might be. But Founders Tribe is taking technology and the millennium craze with technology and understanding of technology to really do something different. The other place of where I think of innovation, AEO is innovating in two particular ways that relate kind of to the capital. One is um, a matching algorithm that, again, matches entrepreneurs to uh, CDFIs and others who have capital, just kind of sitting and not knowing how to get it into the right hands. The other place where we see innovation is needed is around some digital tools around cash flow management. Cash flow, unfortunately, from our research, research from J.P. Morgan Chase Institute, is showing, in particular, Black women are really exiting quickly out of businesses because of irregular cash flows. Not only do they not have the tools necessary to really manage the capital after they're able to get it, but they also, again, on the other end, don't have the cash liquidity to actually you know, weather a storm. And so AEO is innovating a cash flow solution that will actually bring the four pieces that we know are needed. The bookkeeping piece so that actual entrepreneurs will use it. A lot of them buy it, but they don't actually use it. So I'm changing that and making sure that piece is there. A knowledge center so that they can actually build their own confidence and capacity because they are getting stronger in in knowing what to do around cash flow management and how to move that business forward. We're bringing a a virtual CFO. I know what I did for my organization when I was able to not just have an accountant, but hire a, a chief financial officer. And so small businesses we know can really uh, get a lot out of great impact by having access to a CFO. And then lastly, what I already mentioned is we're actually working to bring a small dollar, relatively small dollar under 50,000 line of credit. So they can give, have this cash liquidity already available to them ahead of time when they can see down the road because they're keeping good the books what kind of uh, future they're going to have in terms of cash flow need and a liquidity need. So that's a, that's a sampling of what I think how, in, how important innovation is and where some of the innovation is taking place across the country.
1: Thank you. That's wonderful. And I know Ryan and Suzanne also want to get into this piece on innovation. I think Probably innovation, if it's done equitably, is going to be that silver bullet in kind of breaking generational uh, gap or the barrier to underrepresented entrepreneurs getting access to capital. Like, for example, what you just described, you can do in a seamless way today. I'll give you an example, but I don't think that's equitable. What you're doing is probably more equitable. But for example, if you connect your QuickBooks to, uh, let's say, for example, a partner like Lendio, they will look at your QuickBooks. Uh, just your invoicing, and give you a cash flow line of credit that is just with no, uh, you know, social security, no credit check, nothing. Just simply based on how many invoices are coming in through QuickBooks, and it's fully automated. You basically have an API that connects there, and then automatically the cash is in your bank, and it's a revolving line where it's like on a twelve or sixteen week uh, uh, cycle. Uh, and so some of that innovation is happening, but then we got to make sure it's equitable that it is reaching people that might not have QuickBooks that need to start much further behind. Uh, But I think innovation is going to be a big problem solver uh, in kind of closing that gap. Um, So I see, Ryan, you're unmuted. Uh, Go ahead. Tell us what you're saying with innovation.
2: Yeah. So, uh, man, I wrote down so many notes from what what Connie mentioned, Um, virtual CFO. You know, one of the things we have to recognize is that folks like myself were wearing many hats. Um, you know, I will be the accountant. I do the books for us. Um, I have a staff of 15. So at any given time, I'm also the psychiatrist and psychologist for a a group of folks. Um, You know, uh, I'm the plumber, I'm the electrician, I'm all these different things. And so what tends to fall on the back burner sometimes is that accountant role, unless I need to actually fund something in my business. And usually, Um, entrepreneurs like myself and some of my peers, we don't know we're in trouble until we're in trouble. And the fact that larger organizations, 500 plus, 100 plus, 50 plus even employees, they have departments that do this for them, which gives you an idea of the magnitude of the job, right? They have a legal department, there's an accounting department, there's a marketing department um, what happens when those departments are just one person? And so our, our, I want our um, society to almost recognize that our micro businesses, the impact that they have. Here are a few things. Uh, access to capital is such an important thing. Um, here are a few actionable things that I feel like we could jump on. Number one, recognizing that our larger institutions, you know, to, to process a loan of 20, 50, 75, even 100,000 is the same work to process a million dollar loan. And so for some of our larger institutions that I know of, they would rather process the larger loan versus the little guy loan, right? Here's a few things I would love to see. I would love to see a change in the rubric score, the summary evaluations that banks use to actually evaluate credit worthiness and risk. And part of the reason why I wanna see that adjusted is I wanna see you know, um, institutions that increase their loan loss, right? So that if you're expecting X amount of loans to go into default. Let's increase that a little bit to make it more advantageous. You know, uh, it, you know, uh, Energize Colorado, the organization I work, we we increased our loan loss ratio twenty percent. Not to say that we anticipate. Well, we're 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 baking that into the budget, recognizing that we're working with micro businesses. What we found out by talking to a lot of the CDFIs, our community also has a lower default rate. Also, right. Um, recognizing that credit-based loans sometimes won't work for micro businesses because we're using credit cards, right? Institutions are going to evaluate my business based on my personal credit. And I'm going to throw everything at my business that I possibly can. And that includes the chase card or the this card or the, that card that even though it says Ryan Cobb is in, it's a personal card. It may just be my personal card in my name, but it's my business card. Um, I'd love to see some regulations around um, institutions that are charging an extreme amount of interest. Right. We've had we've had to do these, the 30, 40, 50, 100 percent interest loans. And look, uh, coffee at the point in Denver, we've had to do this multiple times. We opened up underfunded. Um, and when we get into a crunch, there's folks that reach out and say, hey, I'll fund you in 24 hours, not six months like a typical a typical organization or even three months, but in 24 to 48 hours, you could have funds in your bank. They want a daily repayment at such a high interest rate. Well, we need to put regulations to maximize their, that, that rate because I'm the philosophy by any means necessary, I'm going to keep my doors open. And so um, we take a gamble on that that puts folks a lot of businesses in kind of a spiral um, in a negative spiral I should say downwards and not upwards um, there's a few other things but yeah I mean I I'll, I'll pause there um, yeah. but I think yeah. there's some very very easy actionable things that we can do um, very quickly to help businesses get access to capital yeah.
1: Yeah. And I know, Suzanne, you want to get in as well. And if you can touch on capital, but also the other aspects of technical assistance from what you're seeing. Uh, I know capital is always a top of mind for entrepreneurs. Uh, What else are you seeing?
0: Um, I think it's important to talk a little bit about the ecosystem. And so, I love the points about the the many rules that the entrepreneur plays within their business. Um, between working in local government and coming to state government, I spent a couple of years working for a small business. Um, we grew our revenue from about one hundred and fifty thousand a year to four hundred and fifty thousand a year. Now, four hundred and fifty thousand a year—like we did not crack a million. This is like nothing nothing crazy, nothing fancy, but we employed a couple of people and we saw some really, um, really great success. Um, and we were definitely making um, progress, but we were also the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker. Um, so like the janitor, also the IT department. I absolutely think that that's really important to lift up because entrepreneurs do not have time to go out into the ecosystem and find these supports. So if we... We are really going to play in a role, we need to make sure that we're going and finding the folks that are maybe at $300,000 in revenue and can take off from there. We need to go out into neighborhoods. We need to make sure that we are um, reducing barriers, especially around language. Um, making sure that we have bilingual staff within our support organizations. We also are taking a look at the different roles within the ecosystem. So yes, we have service providers that may be providing that one-on-one technical assistance, and they could have a specialty like financial education, financial literacy, getting to capital. But we also need to make sure that we're funding and building capacity within the trusted connectors. These could be chamber directors, neighborhood um, community development, and organizations. Um, It can be religious organizations within the community or neighborhoods. Um, Whoever that trusted connector is, do they know the other resources within the ecosystem to be able to make the connections for the entrepreneur? Um, Because oftentimes we're seeing the entrepreneur does not have the time to go to a workshop, um, to go to the workshop in the middle of the day. They need some, like as Connie was talking about, some of these innovations. Even using a technology model um, to reduce it the time it takes um, in order to get uh, the know-how that they need to grow. Um, so we're trying to really understand how what our ecosystem across Michigan looks like because we have areas of the state that it's working really, really well. Um, Metro Detroit um, and the Detroit area has been working on ecosystem development for many years now. They've been working with EIC, um, and they have done a tremendous amount of work building trust among the different service providers but there are other areas of the state that have a ways, a ways to go and there are rural areas and you know di- regional dynamics that all need to be factored in to how we can make further investments into some of these organizations um, so thinking about how do the organizations refer to each other how can they build trust you know is it see our organizations Seen as competitive with each other. Well, you do business planning and we do business planning. There is a whole hurdle there of trying to unpack that you know, service providers, um, in some ways they're competing for the same funding pots, but in other ways, like there is a role for everyone to play. Um, and so trying to figure out how we can create more um collaboration among the service providers, how can we convene them? How can we create Standardized um, technical assistance or intake or measurements, um, so that we're all kind of working from the same playbook. I think that's like a really important piece that I don't want to lose um, when we're talking about technical assistance and and not just get not just the capital um, because we we know it's not just about getting the loan. It's not just about getting PPP or the MEDC like. For example, the MADC, I think we had almost 25 COVID programs that deployed capital over the last two years to small businesses. It's not just about getting money in the hands of small businesses. It's about ensuring that they have the wraparound services um, uh, before they get capital, after they get capital um, to really ensure their success.
1: Yeah, I think a really good point there, Suzanne. And thinking about the wraparound services, at the end of the day, uh, I think for all of us, uh, small business starts is ultimately a path to wealth creation. And that's the underlying motivation for all of us to to talk about micro business starts. And so thinking broad, you know, more broadly, more than capital about things like ownership. Like if you're starting uh, uh, at a downtown location, is there a path to commercial real estate ownership for the space you're at? Or are you signing a lease that will never really create long-term wealth for you? And you're simply, you know, maybe you're getting 10% profit or like like Ryan, like you said, like if you get a high interest loan, you're not even making a profit, right? So thinking more structurally, and I love this panel because you've got all three different views. So, you know, with Connie, we've got a national support organization. With Suzanne, you've got somebody from, who works with the government. And then, Ryan, you bring in also the small business perspective with your coffee shop. So I love kind of how, you know, we have this collective. So, Connie, let's ask about, you know, policy. Where, where should policy go? And, we'll, and I'll throw it to all of you. But let's start the next topic around, you know, what policy changes can we see on this space?
3: Policy is always um, one of those interesting issues, agenda items, just because it takes such a long time, most of the time, to get effective policy passed. But given that, let me um, start with a couple of, of areas of policy issues that we're trying to work on, um, just to put out like some craziness that, that could be out there. So um, one of the pieces that we're focused on, of course, we've been talking about capital. And usually, and I think I heard Ryan definitely talk about you know the high interest rate and, and you know not always needing debt. And some businesses just can't take on debt at a particular time. What we found out is how effective grants can be. I mean, years ago, when I was doing this work in Chicago on the ground, you know, people used to come and ask us all the time, aren't there grants, aren't there grants? And we'd go like, no, they're not, you know, any grant programs. There was some television ad that was promoting grants and people had a warning about don't follow that, and et cetera. What we've seen now, since the pandemic, AEO has been able to distribute more than $300 million in grants to Black-owned businesses. And in some cases, like we started that program very early in the pandemic with our corporate partner PayPal. And so PayPal originally gave us 10 million to distribute to, to, um, to black, Ameri- black business owners. We now have been, and then it came back later and gave us 5 million more to distribute. We now in that case have been able to go back a year later and um, do take a measurement, take a survey of the first 1,100 members who got those grants, $10,000 around, you know, generally each. And what we found is that one year later, 99% of those businesses are still up and running. We measured after six, another group, smaller group, under 300 uh, black owned businesses. And after six months, 97% were still in business. In addition to getting those surveys back, we found out how they used the money, et cetera. But what I didn't realize is that they talked to, we have hundreds of emails talking about the hope that those that, that grant provided. We look at PPP, we know those were grant dollars, how and why they got distributed, who they did, whether it echo, I'll stay away from that part of the conversation. But if we look at how those grants really did help those businesses, it makes us think of, wait a minute, what are we missing here? Why can we not change policy so that it's not an emergency, it's not because of a pandemic, Why can't we change policy to recognize the usefulness of grant dollars and get more government agencies providing grants all the time in a very structured program for small businesses who can use grants to move their businesses forward? Particularly, we know that startups have an awfully hard time getting that initial capital going. And so why not do a grants program? The Kauffman Foundation that some of your audience may be familiar with, actually has put in their policy document recommendations around their business plan document, a call for, I think they're using the word catalyst grants for for government policy to take on. And we strongly support that. One other example where we think there's an opportunity for policy intervention, um, you are probably, I know you're familiar with um, CRA, the Community Reinvestment Act. So many of us around the country are working to modernize that. But we've taken that issue a step further. When we think about big tech, and AEO has um, a number of partners that we work with in big tech, Google and Facebook and, and many others. But when we look at Big Tech and on the Hill, what the Congress is debating, is all about antitrust laws. We have not figured out how any of their antitrust comments and and particular policies are going to actually help small businesses like Ryan's Big Coffee Shop, right? But what we recognize is needed. Why not take Big Tech and apply a framework similar to CRA, where Big Tech is putting back entrepreneurial resources in the community, and that's how they're giving back. That's how they're being held accountable to a community, which is most of us who use technology, how they're making their money. Why not create a framework similar to CRA where these tech companies are putting back money in the community to support entrepreneurship. So those are a couple policy frameworks that we think are both innovative and really will help small businesses, micro businesses.
1: I love it. In fact, Connie, I don't know if you know this, but Google recently announced that they are going to start charging all these small businesses that were using Google Workspace for the last 10 years, uh, start charging them. Which actually, for a small business, could end up being like three, four hundred dollars a month, and their policy like this can actually make a difference, right? Like you don't need to make money off the back of the small and micro businesses that are starting. You don't need to be start. You don't need to start paying for email service when you haven't started generating cash flow yet, and things like that. I think there's definitely a space for big tech, especially that nowadays. I think if any of us looks at the tools we use, all of us are using at least twenty or thirty tools. You know, even though we have Google, we still use Calendly. Right. We still use an event platform like Eventbrite. So uh, ultimately, if we can get big tech to kind of help uh, underpin some of the small business starts, I think there can be some meaningful uh, investments back. Uh, Suzanne, I'll throw it over to you because you can actually specifically talk if you want around the SSBCI uh, efforts. Right. That there there is some innovation coming with. Uh, supporting micro businesses, uh, but also generally around policy. How do how are you all looking when you think uh, you know in Lansing? How are you looking at policy for micro businesses?
0: Well, I think we really want to see a shift with uh, pairing capital and technical assistance, and having that just built right into our programming. Um, the State Small Business Credit Initiative um, is a loan enhancement program um, for. For those that may not be super aware of what's happening there, this is a reallocation of funding that I think started in 2009. It's a little um, over 10 years old or so. In Michigan, that has funded programs like our Loan Loss Reserve Program, Loan Guarantee, Collateral Support. And loan participation. And we'll be continuing those programs through with our SSBCI 2.0 kind of version um, with the new allocation that um, kind of came out of the American Rescue Plan. Um, One of the interesting things, in addition to funding venture capital programming. Treasury also has allocated some of the SSBCI dollars for technical assistance. So I know in our state, we're going to be getting a little over $5 million for technical assistance, and that can be used for legal, financial advising, or kind of pre-capital, capital capital readiness um, eligible activities. And we're putting together our overall technical assistance strategy, but we'll be focused on as sort of the Treasury guidelines have outlined, um, making sure that SETI socially and economically disadvantaged um, businesses and very small businesses, which is what we call micro businesses, um, will have access to that technical assistance pot um michigan has i think 230 plus million dollars um for the ssbci capital programs so that's a lot of money that we need to deploy and it's the way that it's set up we have to kind of get a third out the door a third out the, to unlock the next third to unlock the next third um so we're really trying to figure out how to ensure that micro businesses in particular will have access to these loan enhancement programs. So traditionally our SSBCI programs have been used by small to mid-sized manufacturers, um, not necessarily micro businesses, definitely not like very rarely main street businesses. I I won't say it has never been used, but um, we really wanna make sure that businesses that are are not capital ready, have access to support services, whether that's um, financial, credit building, um, getting folks prepared, like the QuickBooks. Um, I know when Connie was talking a little bit about innovation, one of the things that's been circulating among Michigan's ecosystem is like TurboTax style um, system for bookkeeping, right? It doesn't have to be, it can just be like, what was your revenue last year? What was your revenue the year before? What was your payroll expenses? And da 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 produces at the end um, the documents that they need to be capital ready. Um, so that's something that we've been thinking a little bit about as well. But uh, as we can tie additional technical assistance and capacity building among support organizations into the capital programs that we have to ensure success. I really think we're going to better serve our small business community um, by doing so. So that's that's kind of a shift. Um, We've been doing it a little bit at a small scale within like our main street communities. We've been pairing TA and capital, but how do we do it on a much larger scale? And with the opportunity um, through SSBCI, both with a capital or a technical assistance bucket of funding and a capital bucket of funding, we really think this is going to be a great opportunity to, to make some real change.
3: David, if I could, if I could just jump yes, in please. for a quick yeah. second,
0: uh, Suzanne, I'm so glad you brought
3: up SSBCI. We just, um, so it's a great program. I was around, like you said, when it first started, um, and and this go around, one of our concerns is um, something similar to what you said, but that it it doesn't come down to the states with any kind of racial equity requirements or lens. You know, Treasury this year created this new department or new role that Janice is in. I'm sorry, I probably shouldn't use her name, but um, that is focused on racial equity and looking across treasury. We could not get that department, though, to take on SSBCI, right? They said they couldn't or shouldn't, for whatever reasons, didn't do it. So I actually just joined a, a coalition that we are putting together to try to as collectively do something to bring a racial equity lens to SSBCI uh, in the states. And one of the things we think can help um, move that forward is inclusion of CDFIs, particularly focused Black-led CDFIs. There are over 50 Black-led CDFIs who could have access to SSBCI, and those are you know, they are the ones who are serving more Black-owned businesses. And so one of the ways to bring racial equity to the SSBCI program, since Treasury did not put any kind of mandates or racial equity lens states could do it by working more with CDFIs and and putting those commitments in place at the state level. So I hope it's something you'll take back to Michigan and, and put a new lens and bring that real racial equity lens instead of just kind of saying, oh, we want to make sure it gets to underrepresented. I think the PPP program is the greatest example we all can use that says, yeah, see, when you say you want to get it there, but you don't do the right things to put it there, it's not going to happen.
0: That's a really excellent point. We have, I'm really proud of the CFIs in Michigan. I think they have been, they've formed their own coalition and have been providing recommendations to the state for about a year, a year and a half now. Um, I think it's going to be absolutely critical that we engage with them, especially around our loan guarantee program, which we think is really going to fund that micro loan type um, customer. Um, So I'm really excited to see the proposals coming through from our CDFIs. Um, We've been really engaged with them. Prior to uh, our lending application going to Treasury last fall, we did an RFI um, and had a number of CDFIs respond to that. Um, I think it's, it's interesting to mention, like, in Michigan, we um, have a constitutional amendment that we are unable to make any decisions um, or select any businesses or organizations for services based on demographic information. We cannot even ask, like, does your CDFI have a history of serving Black-owned businesses? We cannot ask that or make a decision based on that. And so that has been a real challenge to try to approach um, the way that we serve uh, in all communities um, in a more equitable way. Um, And I think that we're trying to utilize what Treasury does have as far as the definition of um, SETI um, to make sure that we're doing a little bit better job um, within the legal parameters that we have to make sure we're getting these resources um to the people who need them most. Um, but it has been a challenge. I think it's important to acknowledge that, you know, we're still we're still trying to work through that. And with a, cons- a state constitution amendment uh, prohibiting uh certain targeting, you know, it, it just makes it a real challenge.
1: Yeah. In fact, I'm um, so Today, I'm actually here at the Texas EDC to speak at the conference. And one of the points I'm making is that if you don't, uh, if you're not intentional in the design of the program, no matter how good your intentions are, ultimately it will fail. And PPP being the the greatest example of that, right? Like the design was that you had to have a trusted banking relationship and you had to have cash flow statements. Immediately, it uh, excluded every underrepresented entrepreneur because very few people have a trusted banker. Like, what is that, right? That is not in the black and brown community. So uh, uh, intentionally building that into the design of the program, I think uh, is better than trying to, uh, you know, retrofit it, but that's what PPP ended up being, right? Later they came back and said, well, you don't need to have a banker and you don't need to have that. By then, a lot of businesses had gone under because they didn't have the cash to survive, right? so Ryan, I'll throw it over to you because uh, one point that you made that I love, which is around uh, uh, you know thinking about the the money that is given to small businesses. In fact, I've been trying to push this idea, and it's not getting any traction. Which is that even if small businesses default, they're spending in the local economy. Rather than giving dollars, you know, through other uh, programs, if they fail, they've still spent the money in the economy, and the money stays in the economy, and it still helped with other types of work. Right. So ultimately you could just write it off as a grant. It's not taking any traction because everybody's like, no, we got to be fiscally responsible. We need to have, you know, uh, uh, certain kind of markers. What are you doing with the, you know, the gap fund in Colorado, uh, and the work that, you know, uh, your
2: organization is doing. Yeah. So I'll touch on that. and want to make a few comments, so, but real quickly, we've increased our loan loss ratio to 20%. Right. Um, not only that, but we've also, as we develop future programs are looking at you know, character based versus uh, credit based, and, and even doing a credit based analysis, recognizing that what if you did a credit based analysis, but recognizing that the credit score could be as, as you know as low as you want it to be, right? And so, um, but with that, asking the question and, and analyzing one question: Can you repay back the loan? Can you afford the monthly payment? Um, and so, uh, and then what uh, Suzanne and even Connie mentioned, wrapping TA or technical assistance um, with dollars as well to make sure that there is some form of ecosystem or wraparound services for businesses. Um, so that, that's what I, how I would um, answer that piece. In addition to that is also um, minimizing the, the um, enormous amount of documentation needed for loan applications. Um, it would be great to, um, provide a loan application that's almost, uh, you know, is almost the same uh, around. I wanna go back though, because I think there's some important pieces uh, to be heard, which is, you know, and and Connie mentioned this CRA money. So community reinvestment act money, um, which are, you know, a lot of established banks, seven figure dollars that these banks could provide to our community. But then when you add also PRI money, program related investment money to where um, individuals and also institutions could actually Um, They're not looking for a huge payout in essence. And so that falls into the conversation about grants versus loans. And I would argue grants and low interest loans being on the same playing field, playing together. Um, And I say low interest loans, that's the other piece that we're doing is deploying loans in essence, 2.5% interest. Here's the impact of that is that if we've gone through COVID for a lot of my counterparts, recognizing the impact of grants versus loans, if your business is making money and you've received grants, in essence, you're getting taxed on that grant. The grant is considered other income. And we know if that business is making a profit, you're in essence paying taxes on that profit, right? So increasing your tax liability to where the right style loan, a low interest loan, for example, the interest payments are considered an expense, which then lower your tax liability. And so we get in this conversation of, a lot of our for-profit businesses now having this huge appetite for grants, but then also recognizing grants can also hurt you as well. And so, putting together an appropriate capital stack um, is an important piece. Here's the last thing I, I last thing I'll mention, which is I'm a strong believer in technical advising and also business advising. I, our, you know, my business, I'm a guy opening a, a coffee shop, and for two things, I would say um, there's there's no. Story or statistic that says we should still be in business. Number one, there's not that many chocolate people doing coffee. There are not many Black people doing coffee, period. Uh, Number two, before opening up coffee at the point, I drink one vanilla latte from Starbucks once every six months, right? Maybe. In fact, I remember going to open up my business saying, this is what I want to do, going to different coffee shops to put my arm on tables to figure out how in the world you do this. Because I had never been a barista. I was getting queasy in in the pit of my stomach. like It was just a new smell. Um, That's how new coffee was to me. But it was a growth catalyst program through our small business development center. It was all these different technical advising and business advising pieces that helped me create these different plans. Now, as I say that, I also want to say, give me the money. Give the business the money. I, I have to remind myself that our entrepreneurs around the, the, the country, somehow they had, I, I learned this from Judge Judy, the chutzpah to get off the ground, to take things from an idea to implementation, to do things that most folks don't do, which is not just decide they're going to do something, but then actually do it. The challenge, the, the, to me, the biggest challenge with our businesses, our small businesses is, you know, a, a mentor once told me the definition of success is to double your rate of failure where our small businesses can't afford to fail because they can't buy themselves out of the hole or the challenge of failing where, you know, l- larger organizations, your R and D department, research and development department, they, you know, we make a mistake. We just, we write a check out of it. Um, Our small businesses don't have that ability or capacity to do that. And and some of that is just being underfunded by our institutions. Policy would be um, let the um, uh, collateral support like what Suzanne mentioned, right? Let the federal government step in and provide some form of collateral assistance. Let's turn some of the, once you make X amount of on-time payments, let's start turning some of the loans into grant dollars. And so here's your reward for recycling your dollars into our community. Your most small businesses are, are buying local as well. So that local ecosystem is being funded. So, um, so yeah.
1: All right. I can't believe we're almost at time here. Uh, I feel like we're just getting started. Suzanne, I'll ask you uh, uh, one last question for you. And then Connie, I'll have you take us home. Uh, Suzanne, tell us, you know, what's exciting in the Michigan small and microbusiness ecosystem in the next year. I know you're all doubling down on microbusinesses. There's, you know, so many programs that we're excited working with you. Tell us, you know, in the the coming year, uh, what are you most excited about in terms of supporting small and microbusinesses?
0: Well, um, I think it's very quickly important to mention that the MEDC has not traditionally looked at small, like very small or micro businesses before, other than being kind of part of a community development strategy. Um, it hasn't really been on the radar. You know, we've really have been focused on large manufacturing, recruiting, um, and attracting job, you know, big job creators across the state. And I think that the pandemic has really um, put a bright light on the role micro businesses play in our economy. And so it's exciting to see sort of this elevation of support small business within the MEDC strategic plan. We've also brought together, um, this is kind of probably a minor thing in state government, but we brought together all of the teams within our organization that touch small business. So both micro and place-based business services, um, we have a B2B program called Pure Michigan Business Connect, our capital access program, which manages all the CDFIs, and then second stage growth, international trade and exporting. All of these teams are now under kind of a new pillar within our organization, So we can really think about the journey of the small business owner and the journey of our customer from startup um, all the way to second stage growth and making sure that we have programming and tools available. doesn't matter what industry they're in, but are they able to receive services um, at the state level, either directly from our organization or through partners um, in the ecosystem? So I think this is just a really great time to see that movement. Um, to see small business, ele- you know, kind of get its day in the spotlight, micro businesses really um, coming to the forefront in our programming, and being able to work across teams to, to say, like, hey, you might have a main street business that, you know, is a food maker, but they are also poised to grow, they need um, kind of Uh, Second stage counseling, they are ready to export, they're ready to move here, they're ready to move there. And with our team really coming together, um, we're able to make a lot more connections among each other's programs, as well as out into the ecosystem.
1: Thank you. And uh, Connie, I'll let you take us home. Uh, If you can help wrap this conversation uh, and kind of tell us what you're, you're most excited about in the coming year in your support of micro businesses.
3: Sure thing. Uh, that's a lot to put on me, but I'll take a I'll take a stab at it. You know, we start, I'll, I'll I'll end where we started, which is looking at the impact that uh, micro businesses really have on the economy and, and vice versa, right? What's happening in the economy? What are the trends that are going to impact businesses? So what we're looking at in terms of ahead that I think we all should um, be attuned to is ESG commitments. More and more corporations are, Uh, coming out with their ESG commitments and announcements. And we're concerned about how some of those policies and practices and corporations will impact their procurement vendors, right? And and folks who, they are making um, commitments that, you know, could pass down new challenges to their suppliers. Well, their vendors and suppliers are top tier and they probably can be ready to take whatever. It's the black and brown businesses that are subs, right? And nobody's going far enough down in these corporations to say, what are the implications of my ESG practice and and, um, procedures, how is that gonna impact them? So we're doing research um, that will kick off um, after our 30th anniversary event in July. Uh, We're doing research to actually look at the limitations that. Um, and implications that some of those programs will have on micro and small businesses, particularly those owned by Black and brown folks. In addition to looking at that space, we're also looking at what's now called, you know, the metaverse or Web3, and how that technology is going to impact our currency, the kinds of loans that a PayPal or some of those other uh, types of fintech companies that Ryan mentioned. How will, you know, kind of like this new Web3, how is it going to show up in currency? We already are looking at micro businesses getting into Bitcoin and crypto. So how do we learn more uh, and educate ourselves so that we can better educate the business owners who might be lured into it. We're told, um, you know, Hill Hopper, I hate to drop names as we close, but Hill Hopper is gonna speak at our event next month talking because he believes that, you know, crypto is the next wealth builder for the black community in terms of building black wealth. And so I think when we look around us into this new environment that we're moving into, there's a lot that could be opportunities for micro businesses or threats. We just need to learn more about each of them so we can help micro and small businesses be prepared.
1: Thank you. And I think that's a great way to uh, you know end this conversation today. There are so many opportunities, but we know now better that you know, we have to make sure that all these opportunities are equitable, and they, you know, when they say they are trying to serve our entrepreneurs, that they do actually end up serving our entrepreneurs and are not exploiting us uh, like they have done forever, right? Uh, I look at crypto, and that's the first thing that comes to mind is that, you know, that we're not making some uh, somebody rich in some you know island somewhere uh, at the expense of a small and micro business. Uh, but this is uh, an incredible conversation, and I personally have learned a lot today. Uh, Thank you all so much uh, for your time, Ryan, Suzanne, and Connie. Thank you for uh, being with us today.
2: Thank you.
3: Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Breaking Down Barriers, a podcast about entrepreneurship led economic development. Special thanks to our renowned guests for joining us. You can find show notes, more episodes, send us ideas and subscribe to our newsletter on our website, economicimpactcatalyst.com. Breaking Down Barriers is a presentation of Economic Impact Catalyst and is edited by Lauren Brignard. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Breaking Down
2: Barriers, available for free wherever you listen to your podcasts.